And I remember, you know, an ex-girlfriend, she made a joke when I introduced myself to some of her friends where she said, yeah, your job is the most interesting thing about you. I don't think she meant it in a negative way. However, it really did strike me and I did realize that the biggest feature or the biggest thing that I would talk about when I introduced myself to people was what my company did, not what I did, because what I did was only the company. Hello and welcome to Asking for a Mate. We are back. This was lockdown number two in Sydney, so hence why we couldn't record face-to-face. -face. And as you guys know, I do prefer to record face-to-face. -face. So now I'm finally back into the studio. It feels great. And then we've got a new guest with us. So Asking for a Mate is the feel-good podcast that asks guys to go beyond a small talk. This is a podcast that celebrates guys talking frankly and freely about subjects they wouldn't usually talk about. I'm your host, Cecile, and each episode, I get the chance to ask Aussie guys what's really going on beneath their thick skin in the hope that it will inspire others to do the same. This week, we're going to be chatting with Andrew, that is our first guest back from World of Lockdown, 106 days, I think it's seven days. And we're going to be talking about identity. And I think it's a very good topic to be talking about considering that a lot of us have been going through a lot of changes in the past maybe 18 months. So we're going to be delving into that together and I'm going to be asking lots and lots of questions. So Andrew, welcome to Asking for a Mate. Thank you. Really excited to be here. I grew up in Barrel, an hour and a half south of Sydney. I had a wonderful upbringing with two really loving parents, a younger brother, and then moved down to Wollongong for my engineering degree where I worked at Bluescope Steel as a cadet engineer for that time. It was quite difficult in the sense that I was working full-time, studying part-time, and so I didn't ever have that same traditional university experience where I was just unemployed or had a lot of free time to party. So I was very much work hard and, and play hard at the same time. I got very sick of engineering and engineering industry. It felt quite soulless to me at the time. And so I went overseas and did a project in India on water and sanitation, saw that my engineering degree could be used in a different way, fell in with some amazing people, co-founded a company called Project Everest Ventures, where we operated across Africa and Asia uh, over about a five-year period to develop uh, socially beneficial products and services for rural communities. And that saw me travel all over the world for that five years and definitely was the biggest part of my identity to date in terms of the chunk of time that I spent on it and the amount of effort that went into it. Uh, and then from there, I concurrently did my officer training through the Army Reserves and was commissioned in 2020, where I started doing a lot more work with the Army. When COVID hit, it definitely threw um, a spanner in the works and I spent a lot of time doing army things for the last 18 months, which was a huge change to both my identity, pace, the people that I spent time with, and ultimately has resulted in me making the decision to leave the army full time and come back into the civilian world, so to speak. Uh, that's the best uh, summary I can provide at this point. I'm sure we'll go into a lot more depth as we go through, but, uh, yeah. That's, that's the best I can give at the moment. That is a great summary. So to recap, you were a student, <laughs> turned out to become an engineer, then went into entrepreneurship and yeah. social enterprise, 
being a founder, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then army and then back to being civilian and normal-ish life. Yeah, and and actually, I, and how this conversation topic came up between you and I was coming back to Bondi, having left army, and you asking, you know, how are you finding it to be here? Really going, well, actually, it's been a huge identity adjustment because I can't keep telling people what I do is Project Everest because that was 18 months in the past now. And I definitely didn't feel like army was what represented my identity well. And so then it was kind of the first point in my life where I've actually stopped and not had something to do. So, you know, not going from high school to uni to engineering to starting a business. And it was one of those moments of, okay, well, what am I actually going to do with my life? Like I have complete and utter autonomy to decide what direction I go within, uh, go in. Obviously, COVID is a limiting factor in what direction I can go in and whether I can go overseas. So it's been a huge readjustment on an identity level as well as, you know, a physical relocation of my life and my things and being close to friends and family and everything else. Yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely delve into the last part. If we go back to the transition between being an engineer and, you know, founding Project Everest, and becoming an entrepreneur and, you know, from what you've told me, being extremely involved with that. So maybe the transition between being an employee and a founder, how did you find this when we link it back to the theme of today around identity? The way that I describe founding Project Everest, and I was fortunate to have the most amazing co-founders, uh, three others to do this process was, we were building the airplane as we traveled down the runway and we had to have that, that airplane had to be flying by the time we ran out of, out, out of airstrip. And so there was very little time in my mind when I reflect back on all of that to actually feel like I made any conscious decisions as to how you know, things happened. We, we put a lot of effort and time into defining the values of the company and, and how we made decisions as a, as a co-founding kind of group. But um, it, was, it was definitely one of those things where you just didn't have time to, to really think about it. Looking back now, it was a huge step up. It was going from a, you know, a child or a, a teenager really to a 23-year-old who was taking people over to Uganda, Malawi, Cambodia, India, and being completely and entirely responsible for their safety, their well-being, the direction of these projects. We were setting up partnerships with universities. And yeah, it, it was one of those classic examples of you step up to the challenge, but it also um, was probably one of the best things I ever could have done in terms of growing up and maturing. And it definitely took a few years of me getting used to the fact that I did have a lot of responsibility that came with the title of co-founder. And I don't think I realized that in the few years and first few years. And that definitely created some friction, you know, as with everything when you start a business. Yeah. So if you could kind of talk to 23-year-old Andrew, how would you describe yourself and what would you tell yourself? I would describe it as incredibly immature in some ways and very, very mature in others. So I found that I got along with people in their late 30s, early 40s a lot more easily than people of my own age because my interests, my aspirations were quite different. And then at the same time, I just looking back, did not have the self-awareness that I have now and I didn't fully understand the impact that I had on people. That said, I had never felt so much purpose and direction and fire and motivation and 
there was a three or four month period where I was living off four hours sleep, not for any reason other than I would just wake up and I would be awake and I would want to do things. And it was the most amazing feeling in the world, just every single day waking up and wanting to go to work and wanting to make things happen. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was something that I'd just never experienced before that, that high of finding this life purpose that I aligned myself with so well and threw myself into at the sacrifice of friends and relationships and nurturing other really important aspects of my personality. So when you, when you spend so much time investing into your work and just literally yeah, not sleeping, not seeing your friends, what happened when then you left that role in terms of, you know, how you, how you felt and did you even recognize yourself if you were not involved as much with this business? Yeah, that was the hardest part over the last 18 months. So, you know, I had spent six to eight months of the year over in Malawi or Ireland or the US or Singapore or India over that five years. And naturally that has an impact on the friendships that you maintain. It has an impact on your ability to have a relationship or even want a relationship. And it has an impact on your identity as well because you only meet people through work so your friends are your work and you only spend time at work. So all of a sudden when you take all of that away, you've got this clean slate and you can't really tell people about anything other than what the work that you used to do. Mm. And I remember, um, you know, an ex-girlfriend from when I was at Project Everest Ventures, she made a joke when I introduced myself to some of her friends where she said, yeah, your job is the most interesting thing about you. And I don't think she meant it in a negative way. However, it really did strike me and I did realise that the biggest feature or the biggest thing that I would talk about when I introduced myself to people was what my company did, not what I did, because mm. what I did was only the company. When I made the decision to leave Project Everest, it wasn't purely because of COVID. There was a lot of other factors going on at the time. It was a huge readjustment. I feel like I'd broken up with a life partner and effectively I had, I went through a divorce with my three business partners. They were quite upset that I'd made the decision to leave. And, uh, there was a turbulent time that followed from that in terms of, you know, how we dealt with shares and, and, you know, who stepped up into my position and whether I had any residual responsibilities. And I definitely didn't deal with that as well as I would have liked in terms of, um, you know, being communicative with them um, and they probably didn't respond as well as they could have in terms of being communicative with me. And so, yeah, it was, it was absolutely a breakup. And I remember then, you know, meeting some new people about a year after leaving Project Everest Ventures and them going, oh, what, what do you do now? When, oh, well, I've been doing some work with the army for the last, you know, six to 10 months. And they went, oh, so you're an army boy. And I just like vehemently pushed back on that concept of being an army boy because you know, there's obviously this, this connotation that comes with being in the army in terms of their culture, in terms of what they do. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with being an army boy, it just, it kind of elicited such a strong reaction in me because I was like, no, that's not who I am. You know, I'm so purpose-driven. I'm so value-driven. Everything that I do has to, you know, better the world in some way. And I was questioning whether I was achieving that within army. So it was a really turbulent period trying to work out you know, what are my hobbies? Like, who are my friends? Um, what do I do with my free time? 
And COVID didn't really allow me to then explore what I did in my free time or to develop hobbies or to make new friends. And so I just threw myself back into my work again, being army, but that still wasn't my identity. So it was a really, really interesting transition. That's for sure. Yeah. Because like, yeah, you talked about the connotation for army people, but what about the connotations of entrepreneurs? Like, did you feel that you align more closely with the, like we, we have a lot of cliches about entrepreneurs and, and, and you need kind of almost need to tick a few boxes to be called an entrepreneur. How did you align with those cliches or, you know, what was expected of an entrepreneur at the time? Look, I'm potentially going to um, unintentionally insult some people here, but I, I wouldn't say that we were the classic entrepreneur. You have serial entrepreneurs who just, you know, go from one business idea to the next, to the next, trying to make, you know, the next big idea and be the next big tech company. And then you have entrepreneurs who call themselves that because they start perhaps a coffee shop. And, and all of those are true because we went into social enterprise and because for me, and at least for, you know, my business partners at the time, that was all we wanted to do in our lives. We were so vehemently sure that we, we were so sure that we were going to do this for the rest of our lives, that it wasn't, we started a business and we're going to kind of peddle our wares. It was, this is our life purpose. And we're using the business model as the mode to achieve a social outcome or, or a social benefit in the way in which we behave. Um, and so while I identify with being an entrepreneur by wanting to make a difference in the world through an organizational model that can sustain itself. Yeah. I don't think I'd put myself into the normal category of entrepreneur either, so to speak. So you didn't fit with the categories of the entrepreneur. You didn't fit with the category of the army boy. I don't think I fit into the category of an engineer either. Though some <laughs> okay. people say, Oh, he's such an engineer, but like, I can't imagine doing an engineering role. That just scares me. I just, technical detail it just is not my personality so yeah that's <laughs> so there's no box that is good no box we can't put Andrew in one <laughs> and when it comes to the army because I imagine that being in an army you I wouldn't say you're forced to fit in but you need to fit in because as we we talked about off air the fact that when you're part of the army, it's all about mateship. It's all about what you do for others and make sure that you protect the others. So how did you go about not really fitting with being an army boy, but also having to still fit during the day and during your work hours? Yeah, that, that was that's really difficult. And that's been a really interesting year, especially because I spent this year um, in a full-time role within the army. And I made some really amazing mates over that time. And it took probably about four or five months before they were open to receiving me because I was very much an outsider. And so they were trying to gauge what my attitudes and gauge what my values were, so to speak. And I found them really abrasive and intense to start off with. And it's the function of when you're 18, 19, and you go and join the military and you're in this insular environment where you told what the right way to do something is and we do this because we've always done it and you know the military is traditionally built off thousands of years of developing your standard operating procedures to be as efficient as possible it's really hard to question how things are done or why or the culture of that as well and, and as you said the positive aspects of the army are you you have a group of mates who you belong to 
you use a language in army that's almost like a different language in terms of the in-jokes, the, the terminology that is used, as with any workplace, I guess, and you are expected to behave in a particular manner um, that's in line with the role, and that is to defend you know, Australia and its interests you know, at any cost. And, and that's pretty intense because, again, for me, I went from this um, person who was spending all their time in, you know, in Malawi trying to develop projects around anti-poaching technologies or um, health services or agricultural advice or menstruation products to keep girls in school to having body armour, you know, helmet, ballistic eyewear, um, assault rifle, you know, and you're walking around with live ammunition talking about how you're going to flank the enemy. And it's just such the juxtaposition of, of, of what we were training to do versus what I'd been doing, you know, 12 months prior. That was, that was a pretty intense um, change of environment. And so I really struggled to, to feel like it was somewhere that I belonged. And, and there was a purpose in me being in the army in the space that I was. And um, that was I identified that I align with, you know, um, sustainability of the earth and, and protecting biodiversity. So I wanted to develop a set of skills that would allow me to go back over to Africa and, and support anti-poaching efforts through either training or establishing a wildlife reserve. And Army was a huge opportunity to, to get amazing skills, to contribute back to Australia and to build a network of people who could, you know, join me in that, in that mission. Um, however, you know, you take that photo or that selfie, you know, to share with your family or with your friends to show them what you're doing and, you know, they, they would get really scared or they would go, oh, wow, you look really scary and really intense. And, and that had become normal for me because mm. my daily uniform and my daily equipment was, you know, this warfighting equipment. So it was, it was a huge adjustment, that's for sure. And that's actually a really good point. Throughout your whole transition, how did your friends and family adjust to the change in identity almost that you were going through? They were really supportive and accepting, which I think is the most indicative thing of having you know, an amazing friendship group. Um, and they were really good at always being available to, you know, talk to me and to make sure that what I was doing was in line with, you know, where I wanted to go. However, Army happened really slowly for me because I had done my commissioning course in the reserves and I had an opportunity to go on op bushfire assist that was kind of like this gateway into army where we were assisting, you know, Australian communities recover from, you know, what was a devastating, um, you know, bushfire season. And we were doing everything from clearing roads and railway tracks to clearing people's houses. We came across, you know, dead animals, um, you know, people who had been, you know, affected by the fires really, really severely. And so it felt like we were doing good work. And that was still along the lines of the theme of what we were doing with Project Everest, which is we wanted to have a positive impact on people. Um, then went on to the, the COVID operation, which was, you know, the hotel quarantine. And again, it was like Australia was in crisis and we were, you know, stepping up and, and kind of dealing with that. So my friends and family were really supportive of all of that. When I then took that step to go into the warfighting component of Army to, to get, um, you know, a better appreciation for that, to see if that was a career that I wanted to do. And, and for a period, it was something that I thought that I did want to do. Um, that was the point where people were kind of like, yep, it sounds like a good experience. Like, you know what you want to do. Absolutely go for it. Um, I noticed that it put distance between me and them though, because there wasn't that same common ground to talk about. The attitudes of army are very different to a lot of my friends. So I found that I was kind of taking on the attitudes of the people that I was surrounded by. And that, you know, sometimes scared me if I, if I decided that those attitudes weren't in line with my core values. And I kind of use this test and adjust where if I can't bring a friend 
back to my family and my friends and have them hang around with absolutely zero concerns they're going to say something offensive, then they can't be a friend. And I held on to that for way too long and realized that you can definitely have circumstantial friends and, and kind of deal with cer- certain situations. But I ultimately came back to Sydney and back to Bondi and back to pursuing a civilian career because I realized that there's things that are really important and that is your friends, your freedom and, and your thoughts and your ability to, you know, take the time to, to look at how you're behaving and what you want and what you need. Um, and so I think they were all, their response when I said that I was coming back was the most telling of everything um, in terms of how supportive they were of my army choices. Mm-hmm. Got it. So would you say through everything that we talked about from the moment that you were a student's engineering um, entrepreneur, at least, you know, social entrepreneurship and army, would you say that the world identity crisis could apply to you? And if so, when would that be? A hundred percent. The identity that still sits the strongest in me is Project Everest Ventures because, that, as I mentioned, you know, from 23 to 27, 28, that was when I had that fire in me that had me every day waking up and, you know, so sure that this was my life purpose and this is what I wanted to do. Naturally, having left that and trying to work out how I find that again, dealing with everything from, you know, that, the climate anxiety that a lot of people are experiencing or, you know, you wake up one day and, you know, I'm 29 and I woke up and I was like, in a year I'm 30. You know, this is, is this where I thought I was going to be when I was 30? And, and I kind of started to have a bit of a freak out. And, and then the way that I kind of resolved that thought process was if I was in the middle of the bush and there was no one around me, there was no society, there was no um, anything, you know, I wouldn't know where I should be at 29. I wouldn't know what society expects of me at 30 and whether I should be married or having kids or you know, earning a certain amount of money or having a certain number of assets. And so I kind of relaxed and went, you know what, like this is my own race. I'm going to race my own race. And if I push my life to the right by two or three years, it doesn't matter, you know, whether I'm 32 or 34 or 36 when I, you know, have children or get married or do none of those things, um, you know, that's irrelevant. But I definitely would say that I fit into that category of, you know, having that ident- that global identity crisis that a lot of our generation are having because they're no longer fighting for survival by finding a good solid job to then put their kids through tertiary education. We are that generation as a whole, especially probably to the people who are listening to this podcast who have had a tertiary education and are now going, okay, well, what next? Uh, I want meaning in my life. I want a meaningful job. And when you don't have that, it's like, oh. I'm lost, like I'm not making the most of my time. And, you know, we see that through things like YOLO and, you know, whatever else that, you know, focuses on, you know, you need to make the most of your life because you only have one. Yeah. It's, have you ever heard of the term third life crisis? No. So I I got introduced to this term as I think I was going through my third life crisis. So, you know, about like Midlife crisis, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got midlife crisis. It's a little bit before that. It's like at a third of your of your life, you have a bit of a crisis. And when I got introduced to the term was when I left my full time job because I was like, "There's no purpose. There's no meaning in this." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to go travel, go to Bali and stuff, and yep. explore who I am and what I want to do. Which actually led me, funny enough, to my new life. Excellent. And um, and it's interesting here you talk about 
your own probably third life crisis a little bit, um, even though you were extremely already involved with, with a business and, and probably aligning more your values to your work rather than me when I was back in, in agency land. But, um, but the, also the link that you talked about societal expectations mm. as to, well, you know, what am I supposed to have achieved when I'm 30 and those stupid, like 30 on the 30 freaking rankings, which I, I hate. Um, but it's true. It puts pressure on you around like, I should have achieved this and that. And, and I remember being in a long-term relationship and having set for myself that I would be married at 28 and I would have kids before I'm 30. Yeah. I'm 31, I'm unmarried and I <laughs> definitely don't have kids. So, so I think that, I mean, tell me what you think, but that our identity almost crisis or when we struggle with our identity could be linked also sometimes to societal expectations. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think, so I've, I've, one of the things that I've been doing lately to soothe my mind, so to speak, is, um, read to philosophy and the, a particular philosopher was talking about the three things that equal happiness. And those things are friendships, freedom, and thought. And what you just talked about then is, is thought. And that is this concept of we have, you know, society putting these expectations on us and then we feel anxious as a result of that and we feel like we need to meet those societal expectations and and that's that's really hard that's really scary and it takes a lot for you to kind of stop and slow down and go what do I want to do or how do I want to deal with this and if that's going off to Bali and you know getting drunk and drinking coconuts and you know doing yoga what that's actually your mind and your body doing is saying to you, Hey, I need some, I need a break from all of this. This is too much. Whether it's my mum and my dad telling me that, you know, I need to get married and have kids soon, or whether it's my friends, you know, shacking up with their partners and becoming less social because they want to spend time with each other and going, okay, you know, I need to get away from it all so that I can just have some time to think and reevaluate. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that that concept of society putting that pressure on you is, is, not society doing it, it's just you putting pressure on yourself. And I can imagine for men and for women, that's a huge, huge pressure um, that does exist in terms of what is expected of a traditional male or a traditional female identity or, you know, anything in between. So that's a good segue into one of the questions that I had when I was preparing the episode around what what are your thoughts around the masculine identity that we have in Australia and how does it fit with you and, and you know how you've lived your life masculine identity is tough because i don't think that masculine identity just sits with males it can absolutely sit predominantly in males but it can sit within within females as well and having read a few books around masculine and feminine energy the the way that it was described to me in this particular book uh was that masculine energy is like new york it's very task oriented it's very impersonal and it's to get things done to make money square blocks concrete buildings feminine energy is very warm it's like hawaii it's very warm it's nature it's um, nurturing it kind of you know wants to envelop you and, and look after you and take care of you and we in our everyday lives men and women fill masculine and feminine roles based on what we're doing there is for me at least in the context that I've grown up in being this ingrained bias of, you know, males are leadership. They are direct, they are forward, they're, you know, sporty, they're 
um, you know, people who provide, who, you know, achieve those things. And women are absolutely all of those things as well. Um, and I've definitely in the last six, seven years found that I've had more female friends around me than I've had male friends. Um, because I find it quite hard to connect to other males sometimes when, you know, you can't just kind of meet a new guy and be like, Hey, let's go for a coffee. And you can now, like, I find that a lot easier to do at the age of 29, but at 23, it just, it didn't seem like something that you could do. Um, and so I've definitely nurtured a lot more female friends than I have male. And that has been really helpful to give me an understanding to, you know, some of the struggles that females face and, and to, you know, kind of have a sense check when I'm being silly. Yeah. Masculine identity is, is definitely something that we create in our own minds and we've created in society in terms of how we're expected to behave and whether that's, you know, in the army environment where someone would, you know, make a joke or a slander in my direction. And I kind of just would ignore it. And it was like water off a duck's back. And a lot of the guys around me were like, don't take that. Don't be a beta male. Like you should, you know, you should yell at them in return or you should like, you know, go and knock them one or something like that. And for me, I kind of just didn't even see it as, you know, worth my time. Um, and, and maybe that's because I'm more mature or maybe that's just because, you know, I'm not geared in that particular way. Um, and then, you know, masculine in my friendship group, you know, is becoming more and more, you know, opening up and talking about things that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, I still definitely feel that pressure though, to, um, you know, maintain, you know, fitness, to show leadership, to be direct and to, you know, be that person who takes care of others around them. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's definitely how I identify with my masculinity, uh, in a lot of ways. Okay. So you, you would say from what you, you're saying, if I hear correctly, that you would say that the masculine, you, you identify as a male and there are some parts of it that you don't really necessarily agree with. And then you're actually aware enough to push them off, off, but then you still agree with, and you still embrace some of the masculine identity that is usually expected of a guy. Yeah, is that correct? You've done a very good job of summarizing my rambling. I think that there is no one way to be a male or a female. And, and obviously I have an embedded um, bias from you know, the environment I've grown up in and the males and the females that I've spent time with. And I'm always open to chopping and changing that. And we all need to have our own identity around what we think it is to be male or female or anything in between or non-binary. However, for me, yeah, I definitely enjoy being quite masculine in terms of doing things with my male mates that is very like tough and grueling and, you know, involves being able to kind of just, you know, not guard your tongue, so to speak, not because we say anything that's, you know, untoward, but it's, it is a different energy and it's a different environment. And then I very much enjoy the one-on-one -on -one time that I have with females as well, being able to feel that I can open up about my emotions in ways that I probably couldn't necessarily do with some of my male mates as well. So what's the, what's the part of masculine identity that you feel you've had the most difficulties with growing up like throughout this whole time is there a part of masculine identity that you've actually decided either to let go of or that you've struggled with the most yeah the imposter syndrome side of masculinity of you know when we first started the business i was sent to uganda to set up these country operations so set up the hospitals our relationships with communities and government and find a car and find accommodation i'd never been to africa before i was 23 years old i was going with no one else we had no contacts on the ground in kampala other than one um ugandan local and 
I voiced these doubts to one of my business partners, one of my male business partners, and he just looked at me like I had two heads and he was like, you'll be fine. Meanwhile, mum's crying, being like, don't you dare die. And meanwhile, you know, there was a point where I decided to go whitewater kayaking on the Nile River and I went, you know, underwater and I got stuck and I nearly didn't come up and no one would have known. I would have been stuck in the middle of, you know, Uganda and in the Nile River and drowned and no one would have found me for weeks or months. However, um, you know, that, that concept of I can't do it or I'm scared or I don't think I can do it uh, didn't really have space in, you know, the business partners that I had in the time and, and in my identity to say no, I can't say no to a challenge. And in hindsight, that was good because that forced me to go and do something that perhaps if I was given the flexibility, I wouldn't have gone and done. Um, but I've definitely noticed over the years as well, asking for help is something that I really struggle with and speaking about, you know, my feelings or, you know, if I really like a girl, for instance, to go, oh, you know, I really like this person, she's amazing, et cetera. Um, that's a lot harder for me to articulate and, and have that conversation with other males than it is with females. And I've mitigated that by finding the right males to be friends with who do give me that space, but it's taken, you know, 10 years to get to that point. Mm. So when you were saying the imposter syndrome, what I heard from your story is more around either fear or fear weaknesses or mm. showing your weakness and, and then also along the lines of vulnerability, which can be a bit linked. Yeah. Rather than imposter syndrome, because any, anyone can have imposter I think it's more that we don't we don't allow guys to be weak and, and show signs of weaknesses, which I think are more vulnerability. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you're correct. I think it is it's perhaps just a vulnerability or a, a doubt in, in self and not feeling like I was able to be open about that and not feeling like I could ask for help or that I could say, no, I'm not doing this. It was just, no, you have to do it and you will do it. Yeah, because it's not very celebrated to say, like, I'm scared or I've got doubts, especially for, for guys. Whereas, like, I feel for women, it's like all you hear growing up is be careful. like it's going to be dangerous. Like, be careful, be careful. That's all you hear. Yeah, and imagine if in the same vein of that, right, instead of, you know, in, in response to me being like, I don't know if I can do this, it was like, no, 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 you'll be right. Imagine if every time a female said that, they were like, no, no, you'll be right, just do it, and you have no option but to do it. You know, it, that would be insane. That would be amazing as well. So I'm sure there's a fine line between where you can have a little bit more space for you know, stereotypically for men to be able to talk about their vulnerabilities and to not give so much space, you know, to females to be like, you know, be careful and do this and, and to be, you know, more, well, yeah, you absolutely are capable. Just go do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Like when I, when I met my partner, I had been driving a scooter for five years and I touching wood, there's no wood, touching wood, nothing had ever happened to me. And he just instilled fear in me because every time I'd be, be careful, be very careful. It's very dangerous. And I, and I had to explain to him, I was like, you, you understand that you sometimes it feels like you're putting limiting thoughts in my head mm -hmm. and this is not really um, helping me like live my life. And and it's just like, it, it, I know he did this as out of like, because he cares, but it was, it was interesting to think about, to sit and be like, what are we teaching our girls? What are we telling women about what they can and can't do? For example, like traveling on my own, yeah. you know, I mean, your mom said, please don't die. But, you know, imagine if you had been a woman, what they would have said to you. Yeah. Well, uh, we had a female co-founder and was like, no, you're not going to go do this. It's too really? dangerous kind of thing. Like she... And I don't think she would have absolutely loved to and she she would have excelled at it. But, yeah, I guess in some ways, like, we probably did have an unconscious bias in the same way your partner, you know, isn't intending on doing that. He's just unconsciously, you know, perhaps 
Exactly. No, yeah. no, and and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's it's good to be aware of that. Mm, 100%. And, and what to do. So now that we've covered probably like every part, um, and and kind of discussed your identity in the past, we with all the things that we've discussed right now. Where do you think you're at when it comes to your identity slash maybe, you know, a bit of struggle with your identity? I think what I maintain is from my thoughts and my looking inwards, I know what my values are and I know what kind of person I want to be and and what I want to achieve in the world. And that's, you know, focusing the sustainability and the um, preservation of biodiversity kind of space. Now I need to work out a way of how I get there and do that. Um, I don't have excessive amounts of money to just create like a foundation, so I need to get skills. Then obviously as well is, you know, friends and they are the people who challenge you. They are the people who make you a better person or don't. And they're the people who are a reflection of you, you know, that saying you're the sum average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so I look at that and I'm like, who are the five people I spend the most time with? Do I, do I like this person? Do I want to be more like them? And, you know, you need to be careful with who you spend your time with. Um, and then I think as well within that is freedom. And, and what I mean by freedom is that um, sense that you are able to do what you want to do and express yourself in a particular way. If you're in a friendship group or if you're in a workplace where you can't express your feelings and emotions or you feel like you're not able to do what you want to do, that's going to influence you feeling bad about yourself because you're having to suppress, you know, particular aspects of your personality. Um, and so, you know, I read a really interesting, um, article somewhere and I don't know if it was a quote or what it was, but it was kind of, they described it as identity being a pattern drawn on a tightly stretched piece of parchment. And when you touch or, you know, affect one part of that parchment, you know, in the same way that your entire identity and person responds and reacts to that, you know, is the way that, you know, the entire drum sounds. Um, and so, we underestimate the importance of taking one aspect of our life away and how that actually ripples across how we treat and affect our friends, our sleep, our exercise, our hobbies and everything else. And so for me, I'm, I'm currently rebuilding my identity with the friends that I keep, with the hobbies that I do, with the work that I do, um, but also with what my five-year plan is and where do I want to be in five years and what do I want to be doing? Um, and I don't just want to be doing the same old get up, go for a surf, exercise, hang out with friends. That's great, but that's a, in the meantime aspect of my life, I still need to feel like I'm, I'm pushing forward in a direction and aligned with a purpose. So you are saying that you're currently rebuilding your identity. Do you find that because you just moved to a new place, do you think that it's, it's an easy way to then kind of change your identity and almost like a clean slate to kind of present yourself to the world as the new entry? I was actually going to say that there's no such thing as a clean slate. And the reason for that is, I find it amazing that you can go from new social environment to new social environment, whether it's high school to uni, uni to workplace, new workplace to new location. People tend to fall into the same patterns of how they interact socially. They find the same kind of position in the social group or they get teased about the same things, whether it's their personality quirks or how they talk or what they do. And I've noticed the same thing, you know, the same pattern over and over of even if I have a clean slate, so to speak, I still will end up filling similar roles within those social dynamics and forming certain habits or doing certain things. And you can obviously 
make a huge amount of effort to to change particular behaviours, especially if you identify that they're negative. But I, I don't believe there's so much as was a, as a clean slate. Mm. The only the only comment I'll make there is one of the aspects that I find interesting about going home is I'm still judged by my parents and to an ex, to a small extent my brother on how I was as a child up until 18. So I'm quite tidy and neat. I'm, I'm commented on that by, you know, friends and all the time. However, if I have one bit of my car or my room untidy at any odd moment, that could be the 1% of the time, mum and dad go, oh, you were always messy and disorganised growing up. Nothing's changed. And it infuriates me because it's like that's who I was when I was 18. I'm, it's 11 years on. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but I nearly just did. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I probably should have started with that at the beginning, but <laughs> um, I've just been so well behaved. Um, but, yeah, it, it is. It can be really frustrating when when you do feel like you, you can't escape an old identity. Mm. And so to come back to a counter of me saying there's no such thing as a clean slate, there's definitely benefit in being able to reinvent yourself if you have made changes to how you behave and how you do things. And and a new place can be that, but I don't think running away from your problems and moving to a new country is, is always going to work. It might give you the space to, you know, to look inwards and to, mm-hmm. you know, take take on that full process. Definitely. So the last question that I've got for you today is considering that you've got experience going through a bit of, I mean, some people might call it identity crisis. Some people call it identity recalibration, however you want to call it. What would you say to someone and maybe a male or it doesn't matter, someone going through a similar um, journey? Do you have any sort of like tips or tricks or advice for them? I have what works for me. And as you've probably picked up from this episode, I do have a particular way of thinking that tends to be very kind of engineering and logic based, which is ironic because I am quite an emotional person and I think I deal with my emotions by being logical. Um, so yeah, I think I kind of, I break it down into three things. The first is I actually ask my friends, the ones who I know will be honest with me and who care about me and who know me. Um, I'll ask them particular questions. So, you know, I asked a few of my friends, you know, how is it that I'm crazy? Like, tell me, what it is that I do that is crazy and, and what is like the most obvious thing that you see that I don't, that I do that, you know, is hindering me from being happy, that is hindering me from being happy or having a good life. And I got the most amazing response to one of my friends. She sent me like this paragraph telling me, you know, all the things that make me crazy. I could read it out if you like, but I think it'd be a bit of an overshare though. That is in theme with the podcast. Um, and, and, and that was really good because it was something that I knew deep down, but I really needed someone who, who knew me and cared about me to actually risk pissing me off to, to say that. And, and that is a gift. If you can have friends give you that level of honesty with love, um, that's, that's amazing. So that's the first thing. I think the second is, um, planning where you're going to go, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, um, understanding, you know, where it is that you want to be in three and five years time. Now that's going to change every three months, but if you know what you're driving towards and why you're driving towards it, you know, you want a big house on the ocean. Why? Because maybe you value nature and, and fitness and, and like a healthy lifestyle, or, you know, you want to be earning a certain amount of money because you want to achieve a certain quality of life. Knowing where you're going is so, so key and so important. And I can recommend a resource um, that one of my um, friends, she's an entrepreneur and she she runs her own business, especially for women in entrepreneurship. And she has these templates for free that you can download and, and do this life planning. And I use her templates all the time and it's amazing. And then the third is, I guess, more on the emotional side of what kind of person do you want to be? Now, you could write your own eulogy 
and go, when I die, what are people going to say about me? What kind of person do I want them, you know, to think that I am and kind of go, well, why do I want to be like that? And then kind of, you know, orange yourself around that. If you have friends liking you because you have a nice car, they're probably not your friends. And if they're only hanging out with you for the prospect of, you know, going in a nice car, then, you know, they're, they're not really your friends. And so, you know, within that, you know, make, making sure that you're surrounding yourself by those people and behaving in a way that will attract others who also behave in that way. Um, and I know that sounds very cliche and it's not very specific, but for me, like that's what builds that identity is your friends and, and how you behave and how you think. Um, and the job will absolutely contribute to that because what you do 40 hours a week is definitely a huge indicator of, of what you value and who you are. Um, and if you value money over you know, purpose, then, you know, you're going to work in a, in a soulless job that just makes money and pays the bills and enables you to then live those two days on the weekend. Um, as you can probably tell, I live to work because I would love to wake up every day and love the work that I'm doing because I, I spend most of my time at work. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's those three things is get your friends to give you really specific key feedback with love that, you know, people wouldn't usually tell you. Look at where you're going with your three, your five, and even your 10-year plan and why, um, and then work out what kind of person you want to be and align yourself with those values through your work, through how you live, through your dietary habits or your, you know, your consumption habits or whatever it is, and tell people about it so that you're held accountable because whether we like it or not, almost all of us will be externally referenced to an extent. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's a great summary. And I love the part about asking your friends about what what is what, what is, makes you crazy. What makes you crazy? <laughs> and that's a brilliant one. And I and I've started having a habit of whenever I've got people over for dinner to asking some I mean, no surprise here, I love asking deep questions. <laughs> But um, I've kind of started to implement it when we have dinners. And, and I think that could be a, a cool question. It's a very, very last question for me. So you said that you were passionate about your job and that you live for your job. But it sounds that you, tell me if I'm wrong, but you over-identified with your job in the past. And so when you find this new job that fulfills all your value, would you be mindful of not over identifying with it the same way that you might have done it with Everest and that could have led to a bit of an identity crisis are you mindful and and a bit worried about that or not really that's just what you are no I think that's a really good point and and probably summarizes you know the podcast up really well in the sense that there isn't a single pillar of identity there's multiple and you know that holds up the roof and and this template that I was talking about from this friend you know it the, the first page is the wheel of life and there's these nine aspects of your life that you need to rate out of 10 and you look, you then join the dots and you look at where the wheel is lacking and where it isn't and the idea is that you'd ideally you know, have them all at a very similar level. And so the moment that you spend way too much time at work and that blows out your friendships or your relationships or your significant other, um, you know, yeah, there's a problem there and, and it just depends where you're at in life. You know, as a 23-year-old, you're probably way more prepared to throw yourself into the work um, but as you're, as you're approaching, you know, your late 20s or your 30s and you're starting to realise perhaps that you want to be surrounded by good people, your priorities are going to change. And, and looking back, I would love to throw myself into a really hectic work schedule again, but I would need to make sure that it doesn't sacrifice my friends to the same extent that it has in the past. Amazing. I think it's a great conclusion, as you said. And, and one thing that I'm kind of excited about with 
the, the format of the podcast is that if we think about it, we are kind of like capturing your identity now as a 29-year-old is about to be 30. <laughs> But what would be super in, in interesting is like, you know, in a couple of years, if you listened back to it again, yeah. can you imagine how you would be able to go back to like, this was my identity, yeah. quote unquote. And then you would probably be able to reflect back being like, oh boy, or wow, that sounded amazing. <laughs> and that was an amazing podcast. Yeah, it'll be an interesting time capsule, that's for sure. Yeah. Hey, and maybe you'll have me back in a couple of years and we'll have a completely different perspective on it. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Oh, thank you. It's been unreal. I'm so happy we're back and recording and I've got some more episodes lined up. So I'm very excited for the podcast and for all the listeners. So check again. Uh, you can listen to any platforms. If you want to leave a review, that would be amazing as well. And we'll put all the references that Andrew mentioned in the notes. So don't forget to check this out as well. Thanks again, Andrew. And we'll be back very soon. 